This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 593. So we had things like our churn data and our retention rates and ARR, but we didn't really delve into why. Like the next level down, the engine light's on, it's overheating. Why is it overheating? Is it a sensor problem? Is it a radiator leak? We had to figure it out. So for me, it's taking digging in a little bit deeper, going account by account, understanding like why are we successful in certain accounts? Why are customers really happy here, not so happy there? Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Jim Emmerich, CFO of Narvar, a SaaS software developer that specializes in removing wrinkles from the post-purchase experience. Jim Emmerich is yet another Salesforce alumni who today occupies the CFO office. While names like Pepsi, GE, Intel have populated quite a few CFO offices in the past, in the age of the cloud, it appears that Salesforce is undoubtedly a training ground for the next generation of finance leaders. Our interview with Jim Emmerich begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking with Jim Emmerich, CFO of Navar. Jim, welcome. Thank you very much, Jack, and I really appreciate you making the time today. Um, and and I hope all is well with your family and and uh, your your listeners as well um, in these kind of crazy times. No, oh, I appreciate that. Appreciate that, Jim. You're in San Francisco, and I'm in New York, so uh, we, we kind of got the continent between us. But so much is going on across the land, as we well know. Nevertheless, we're going to begin where we always do, which is to ask you to look back for us and share with us a little bit about your background. And then we want to talk to you about uh, uh, the business and get your read on the realities of, of COVID-19 and its impact on the business. But let's, again, let's start with your career journey. Find out. Tell us a little bit about your background and those experiences you feel prepared you. 
Yeah, I think you know, it, it's. It, I think it stems back to my General Electric days, uh, way back when. I was fortunate enough to be able to go into the financial management program at a GE component called Plastics. Um, that really trained me to be not just a finance person, but a business person first and foremost. And that has always stuck with me throughout my career. Um, I transitioned into automotive in the mid nineties, uh, which doesn't sound very sexy these days, but, uh, it was a very interesting time. There was a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on. Uh, we were a tier one automotive supplier and I learned a ton, um, not only from just doing the deals, but from our, our great controller and our, and our head of uh, finance there. And then transitioning out here to San Francisco. So I, I moved out here in 1998 in the first or the end of the first wave of the dot-com era. Um, have had nine experiences. Probably the most relevant ones um, were Salesforce.com, which I ended up being able to go to in 2001. Um, I uh, also was the first CFO at MuleSoft um, and then a bunch of other first CFO opportunities that came along the line. Uh, and today I'm at Narvar as their CFO, their first CFO. Um, and, and all these journeys really helped prepare me, um, you know, looking back at, at the career. Um, you know, thinking about Salesforce, I was able to pretty much build all the financial infrastructure from, from looking at accounting to, uh, to treasury uh, tax. Very, very broad subjects that I had no real background in, but I was given that opportunity mainly because it was a need for the business and you know, I was able to work with experts in those communities to really learn from, which was a great opportunity for me. But I've used that knowledge and, and moved into the world I'm in today, which is not just doing financial work, but I'm, I, I help out in HR and legal and other aspects of the business, which I've picked up through these stints as CFO at various organizations. And on top of that, I'm also a board member at a startup uh, blockchain company as well. Um, so getting an opportunity to help advise and, and to be a board member as well. Uh, one of the interesting things about your career, I love the fact that you have General Electric and you've got uh, Salesforce as different uh, rungs on your career ladder there, sort of the uh, uh, old economy into the new economy or uh, 20th century into the 21st century, however you want to look at it. Uh, at the same time, the cloud is being born while you're at uh, Salesforce, the way I look at it. just a, Just an interesting place in time to have been there. Uh, and you leave and you step into a CFO role at uh, MuleSoft. Was, and, and I'm just curious about that. That's a, that's a wonderful transition, of course, for you. Uh, but can you share that a little more light on that for us, how that happened? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I had run the gamut at Salesforce. Like I said, I had done every job in finance. Uh, my last job was senior vice president of internal audit. Um, which was a great job. I, I got to travel the world and do a lot of interesting projects uh, for the board of directors as well as uh, the chief uh, you know, compliance officer there and Mark, uh, Mark Benioff, our CEO. Um, but the, yeah, I got to a point in my career where it was like, I've got all these great skills. I need to do, I need to apply them. Like I had seen so much and I really got an itch to get back to a smaller company um, and MuleSoft at the time, we were 35 employees. So it wasn't, and it was called MuleSource at, at that time as well. So it was a different name, and, uh, but a different company, uh, much different than what you see today, uh, where they had a couple of different starts in their products. Um, and then finally, they caught on to the cloud. And, um, and that's really, I think, where the power of, of MuleSoft uh, was unleashed. I mean, it's a great uh, intermediate tool to help wire up other systems. Um, and I always saw that vision, uh, but it was, it just took a little longer to, to get to where it is today. 
Now, do you, was there a recruiter involved there or did you just have a connection and network? No, it was, it was purely done by a, a, an executive recruiter that came in. And one of the interesting things, so, you know, the, the thing that really also motivated me, I went through the interview process and my last interview I had was with Ann Winblad over at uh, Hummer Winblad, one of the venture capital firms out here. And, uh, you know, Ann said to me, like, look, Jim, we love you. You're great. You, your, your references are awesome. And then they said, and then she said to me, but I asked people in like the investment world and nobody really knows you. And I, I was stunned by that. I was like, and then it dawned on me since I had been out here, I had worked for uh, NBC Internet, which was a, a spinoff of CNET. I had worked for a small startup, which was actually another Mark Benioff company called Notify Me Networks. But I hadn't built that network of VCs, of private equity, of, of you know, public capital. Um, and and that, that was a kind of a wake up to me. It's like if I stay at Salesforce, I can have an amazing career. Um, but I won't be known. Like it would be harder for me to have that visibility to something that I want to do in my future. And so that actually was a, a trigger point. And that really, like I, I never had thought of that. Like they don't know me and I need to get known. And, and by going and doing that job, which was a tough job then, I took the job in 2007. We had the downturn 2008. It was not an easy job. Um, but having said that, the company did survive. I ended up moving on to another position at Aperio. Um, a professional services company uh, in the tech sector, once again, working with Salesforce, Workday, and, and Google. Um, and so I got the opportunities and I started building that base, which I didn't have before, which is now I can go to these companies and I can call up people at, at all spectrum of investment firms. I can talk to you know people that are in my network, which I didn't have before, um, going to conferences like uh, Packcrest and, and Citibank really has helped my career. Wow, great, great detail there. Appreciate that because that, as you described it, a trigger point. You realized you really had to challenge yourself if you're going to build those other relationships. It would have to be outside the uh, the Salesforce <laughs> infrastructure. As you can imagine, uh, Mark has a big presence there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it can be. Even that can be a bubble sometimes. So even that, even even personalities contribute to the bubble effect. And I think a lot of uh, finance executives experience that. It comes a time where you got to challenge yourself and start building other relationships beyond where you've been. So um, let's find out about Navar and uh, what what does it do? What are its offerings? Fill us in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and I can give you a little bit of background on my experience with Narvar too. Um, and my my wife uses it as well. So we're a family that used it before I even started working here. I actually met Ahmed about five years ago. Um, I was introduced by a mutual board member that at a company I was at, Bright Edge. Um, Brian O'Malley from uh, Excel introduced me to Amit Shama, our, our, our CEO, and basically said, hey, Jim, would you mind sitting down with him? He's starting up a new operation. He needs to understand how this thing works um, and you know, give him some financial advice. And so I became an advisor in the early days, and I also became part of their investment uh, Series A investor. Uh, but it, it's a very tangible product to all of us and a service that we provide. We provide a SaaS-based platform that helps with that post-sale process. So if you think about it, you buy something on, um, you buy something at Home Depot on their website, for instance, and it there's this whole tracking, the, you know, if your order gets modified, if, if there are delays in it, or it's going to get delivered early, and then if it doesn't work out and you have to return it, all that process is handled by Narvar's platform. 
Um, and you might think, hey, there must be a ton of companies that do that. And in fact, there aren't any, <laughs> with the exception of the big players like Amazon. So if you look at Amazon in comparison to us, they have about a million, 100 million prime customers. Um, <clears throat> and that's about how many people that transact through Narvar in the US um, as well. So you can see kind of, we help those other customers that don't want to be on Amazon because they get a lot of marketing information about companies like Levi's and, and others. It allows them to be autonomous, it allows them to run their own businesses and be successful by doing that, but have the exact same experience that you would want to have as a consumer. Like that, that robust you know, and, and enhanced knowledge of what's happening with your order. How do I get it back to you? Uh, like, can I, can I talk about how wonderful this is? All those things don't occur very easily unless you build it yourself. And many of these organizations don't have the ability to do that or want to do that because that's not their core competency. And we help bridge that gap. And so if you fast forward today, Narvar, we have 650 customers worldwide, customers like Yeti and Home Depot and Nordstrom's. Um, and, and I think in this process, you know, you, you see the, the tragedies that are happening around the world, but there's also light there too. There's people delivering things. They're, they're, we still need to get consumable goods. We still need to get, um, you know, we, we need wrenches and we need wood to build with. Uh, we need we need clothes to put on our backs, right? All those things still need to happen. And, and we help with that process and we help bring the brick and mortar to the digital world um, and help e-commerce companies as well. So tell us about a little bit about your arrival there and whether you uh, needed to make certain key hires, whether you had to reorganize things in some way, adopt some new process. What, tell us a little bit about what you, uh, your, your to-do list might have yeah. looked like. So uh, good news is that I, with my internal audit background from, from Salesforce and my training over GE, I have kind of a prepared thing that I always do, which is run down a risk checklist of where are the key areas that we need to look at and focus on. Um, and, and a lot of it, I think, deals with process. If you look at, at a startup, man, in the, in the early days, you're grabbing for whatever you can, revenue, customers, and you're doing this very quickly. And you start layering on processes and manual things that you have to do, and it stacks up. And at some point, you really need to stand back and say, hey, I did this five years ago because I had to, and I'm still doing it today. Does it still make sense? And you know, as I come in and I look at things, yeah, there, there's a lot of efficiencies to be had. And that's one of the key things that, that separates, I think, my experience from, from others in the CFO world. I, I look at it from a business, um, a holistic kind of business process, not just from finance. Um, I think about the people that we have. Do we have the right people to help us today with what we're doing, or do we need to redeploy them or train them? Um, I looked at processes like from from our quote system all the way to collecting cash. Where can we streamline that? You know, where we used to have two departments, I basically said, guys, you're doing the exact same thing and you're duplicating work. Let's just put you all together, right? Let's break down those barriers. Let's get communication flowing better, get transparency, and let's figure out here's how the process works today. Let's modify it. Let's make it more automated. Let's make it easier for you and our customers down the road. And, and that's, you know, one of the key areas that I looked at. But there are other areas, too, looking at the human resource processes while we're hiring and looking at productivity, looking at the profiles of the, the people that are successful. Why are they successful? Um, in, especially in scaled areas like engineering and sales, getting the right profile is really important because it does have an economic impact. It has a cultural impact. Um, so 
it's looking at those things that are really critical to a company that's growing um, that that kind of I focused on here at Narvar, and I've done that at other places as well. But each each opportunity has a different challenge, usually. Um, there, there isn't a, a consistent, like, you take this blueprint and do that, right? And I think a lot of people fall into that trap. You have a certain type of experience, like, hey, I was at Salesforce. Just take that and do that here. Like, it doesn't quite work that way, right? What about uh, when you think about uh, how you look at the business, when you arrived, was there a particular measurement or KPI that wasn't getting the attention you thought it deserved? Or was there something actually not being measured that you, you said, hey, we really need to you know, dedicate time and focus on this uh, so we can better understand how it grows or doesn't grow? Anything like that? Yeah, for us, you know, we had all the basic gauges. So I, I came from the automotive industry, so I always have analogous things to cars. Um, and we had the basic gauges. So if you think about a car's dashboard, you know, you've got warning lights, you've got speedometers. It tells you basic information. So we had things like our churn data and our retention rates and ARR, but we didn't really delve into why? Like the next level down, the engine light's on, it's overheating. Why is it overheating? Is it a sensor problem? Is it a radiator leak? You had to figure it out. So for me, it's taking digging in a little bit deeper, going account by account, understanding like why are we successful in certain accounts? Why are customers really happy here? Not so happy there. Like why, you know, why should it take this long versus that long to implement a system? Are there things that we should build in engineering that we're not focused on? Um, and so it's taking it down to the next level. So if I, you know, if I look and think about my experience at Bright Edge, for instance, we were scaling an organization. We were trying to make them really efficient and, and be able to scale people quickly. And how do we do that and get a sales organization like a, an engine? Like we can just hire somebody. We know they're going to be successful. We can get to 90% success rate on a person that we hire out of college. And the thing that we had to do is really dig into the metrics and what makes a person successful there and then track those metrics and, and help them with enablement and build their career and take them to that next level, which is an account executive. And how do we become as successful as account executive? There's a three-step process to our sale. You, and you can track that. You can you kind of make it more of a machine. Now, it, it does take a lot of energy to do that. But as you do that, you actually build this knowledge of who to hire and at Bright Edge, for instance, we were able to, to we were having a hard, so I was in charge of recruiting. And, and, and so I would yell at our sales guy from a finance standpoint, like, you're not bringing the bookings in. And he would yell at me saying, like, you're not hiring the people that I need. So I was like, okay, we got we to gotta break the cycle because I couldn't hire enough people in San Francisco and New York. So we had to pick another city where nobody was at. So we, we, uh, we went with Cleveland. And today, I think Cleveland's probably their second largest office in the world. And we did that by taking the knowledge that we had to scale and applying that to, to Cleveland. So when I think about that experience and looking at Narvar, it's taking that and digging into the next level down. And it's very easy for executives, I think, to fall into the trap of, hey, I'll just hire a lot of people. They'll figure it out. I'll assign it. In the, in the early days, you have to dig into the detail, in my opinion. It, it goes back to my FP&A background where I remember walking the plant. My, I remember my first cost accountant uh, manager, he's like, you got to get on the, you know, got to get on the floor, Jim, press a few parts. You'll understand what happens in that process. It's the same thing here, right? You got to understand what are the core things that actually drive the business to be really effective as a finance person and help the business be successful. 
So uh, we want to touch on the realities of our world today. You and I are speaking uh, April 2nd. Let's uh, postmark this so people understand the place and time because the world is changing so quickly for us. Uh, tell us about uh, the steps you are taking to manage this business in light of COVID-19. And of course, there's no secret recipe here, but share with us some of what's happening. Yeah, I, th I think for me, you know, no matter what, part of what I was doing anyway was to make us operationally efficient, right? So looking at our days to, you know, days to collect, looking at our days to pay, um, that was already in process. How do we actually help, you know, make that more of a, a mechanism to, to make it more efficient? Um, and so, you know, you look at the inflows and outflows of cash, you have to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, in a downturn like this, some customers can't pay. Right away, you know, you have vendors that you're relying on, uh, you know, whether it's it's a it's some sort of manufactured good, not in our case, but or you're looking at getting provided services like AWS or, or Google Cloud. Um, those things have to you have to take that into account. And I think more than anything is to start building partnerships with both your customers and your suppliers. And that's how I think we get through a tough time like this. If I think back on the days of Salesforce and at MuleSoft, when we had to really deal with a downturn, like it's crazy to think what's going on today. And it's completely different, I think, than either of those those uh, economic challenges that we had. I mean, this is a, a humanita humanitarian challenge that we're dealing with here, uh, which is a very different, and it's global. It's completely global. Everybody's impacted by this. Um, but having said that, like I think there's there's definitely um, you know things that we do internally. We're looking at our costs. We're thinking about things that we can trim back. We also know that there's opportunities out there to partner with our customers and make them successful through this. And there's opportunities for us because of what we do. We're helping bring traditional uh, retailers and 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 businesses that are typically you know doing it themselves or they're 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 heavily in stores and they need a digital presence right now they need that e-commerce presence so there's an opportunity there for us and you know it, it, it's a it's an interesting opportunity um and when i reflect back at salesforce for instance you know why why did we succeed <laughs> i came in it wasn't that fun when i got there to be frank i mean i was working for like 16 hour days it was 2001 i was happy to have a job because the, the market had imploded um, and Salesforce was one of the few tech companies that was still around that was of some size. Um, but we were we were burning cash throughout that year, and we uh, we were getting pretty close to the the end. Um, but what saved us was was the knowledge that eventually people realized the world hadn't ended. That while there was a lot of tragedy going in the world, and it was right after nine eleven. On top of that, um, business still needed to function. Like the world didn't end, and that that gave us the some of the energy to to see how do we partner with our customers to make them more successful throughout this time how do we partner like i remember talking to our supply you know the people that were supplying us and the people that were partnering with us that had were deploying salesforce and you know boutique kind of ps firms that were ran out of almost running out of cash how do we help support them during this time and that's what you have to do as a finance person is balance kind of all these various vectors and obviously keep your company functioning, but draw upon the community. Like this is the one chance that we have as a company um, to be, look at our broader like business partners and, and really become a partner with them. It's easy enough to say, hey, I'm not gonna pay you, 
but have a conversation around, well, what does that mean? Like, how, how can I help you now? And how do you help me in the future if I can help you now? And have that discussion and have that real rich conversation. Um, it's very easy just to throw in edicts, um, but if you destroy those relationships, you know, most likely most of these companies are going to make it out, um, hopefully. And, you know, you want to have those, those relationships long-term. And I, I remember distinctly, to give you another example from Salesforce, I remember we had a, a PS partner that we relied on, a professional services company, to help implement Salesforce in the early days. And they were small, and they had, like, I forget how many licenses, and they couldn't pay them. And so I had a, I had a decision as, as the head of finance. I had to make a decision. I could have shut them down and sent them to bankruptcy, or I could have worked out something with them. And that's what we did. And they ended up being very successful. They helped us being successful in the early days. And on top of that, like they ended up doing really well and they got sold in Salesforce. Obviously, I don't need to explain. Tell that us story. a little bit about how you're operating uh, remotely these days, your workforce, your team. Yeah, for, for us, we, we, we had the opportunity prior to this to work from home. Um, so the, it, it isn't foreign to us. Now, the vast majority of us actually work together <clears throat> in San Francisco and New York and some other satellite offices in Europe. Um, so it is a bit of a challenge. It does, you do have to spend, you know, the higher up you are in the organization, the more energy you have to spend to to make touch points every day, like have huddles. So I have huddles now with, even if they're for 10 minutes or 15 minutes with my finance group, my HR group, with my sales operations team, just so that you kind of feel like you're still getting that communication there that you get naturally when you're just sitting next to somebody. Um, and then we use communication devices like Slack and, and others to, to keep in touch with, you know, broader spectrum of folks. We have people in India, we have a satellite office there. So we, we've, we've been in this world already where not everybody sits around us. Um, and so it's just taking it to the next level. Obviously with this is there are different challenges. I've got two young ones here that run around and, you know, will occasionally jump into the screen, which is fine. Like you just have to roll with that. And, and to a certain extent, it makes, I think it helps people understand that, like, while I'm a CFO, I'm still, I'm a dad, and, you know, I've got a, a family and a, a life outside of, of, uh, of just work and, and, and the decisions I have to make with them every day. That's an interesting observation, I guess. More, more CFOs are going to seem perhaps more approachable, more human, maybe a human side of them, uh, <laughs> more visible. Let's just say we always yeah, more human. visible. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we've come to our uh, signature question, which is to ask for a finance strategic moment. Now this might've come anytime during the course of your career, but what we're looking for are those moments of insight that you experience as a finance executive, given your, your lines of sight and how you might've acted on them in the past or stayed away from a, some risk that you identified, whatever it may have been, what comes to mind? Yeah, I think there, there are a lot of, a lot of things that come to mind, um, especially on the, the risk standpoint. I think, you know, I think one of the things that really, that, that came to me in the early days of GE, and then it kind of stayed with me throughout my career so far, um, was the fact that there's this, this entrepreneurial type of bug. And I didn't think it existed in me. Um, but when I was at GE, and you think GE is a large company, I was at a component that I think did like $20, $30 billion in revenue every year. But our finance team worldwide was pretty small, even though we were plastics. Uh, I think we had maybe a couple hundred people in finance worldwide. 
Um, and that really allowed me to experience, hey, I went through the FMP program. My first job off of program was running $150 million, three businesses within General Electric and a couple joint ventures with, uh, with Huntsman Chemical. And I was in charge. Like, that was it. It was me. And the, the various plant people were coming to me for advice. Um, we actually figured out a lot of interesting things there. Um, for cost savings, for operational things that I learned from them, and they and they got some financial insight from me. Um, but I think when I think about it, like that triggered that spark, and then I went to automotive in, in an industry that wasn't very, you know, vivacious. But during the '90s, we were doing M and A activity, and once again, I got to be able to do autonomous thing. I was in I was in charge of the M and A team, basically, where we go out to distressed companies and buy them within five days, make a go or no go decision on. You know, fifty, sixty million dollar assets that we were purchasing, and then coming here to the Bay Area and working at nine startups. So that, I mean, when I think about it, it's less of a finance moment, but it is more of a business moment for me, where it, it really triggered something in me. Like, hey, I really like this. I really like having that autonomy and really building my skill set to to enable people to to uh, be successful in the businesses that that I got to be in. When we come back, we enter the mentoring round with CFO Jim Emmerich. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We're back and we're entering the mentoring round with CFO Jim Emmerich. When you think of it, what is it that's exciting you about business and finance today? Not 10 years ago, but really today, which let's face it, we're now uh, in an extraordinary time. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, there's, especially in the industry I'm in, where it's, <clears throat> very technical base, right? It's it's on the outer edge of, of a lot of the technology that's going on in, in the world is coming out of uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. So it, it's been a great opportunity to, um, you know, you meld both of the, the, the technology portion of what our jobs are and what finance really needs to deliver. And finance, in my mind, needs to and is evolving. Um, I don't see myself purely as a finance person. I see myself as, as supporting the business in any manner that makes that, that helps the business through. And that means like today, I actually, I'm in charge of some engineers that are building capability within our platform to reduce costs. Um, they are deployed to me. Like I don't usually have engineers deployed to me, but that's a really interesting thing for me. And I think that's what we will see more and more is the, the CFO isn't just the accountant, the, 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 the gauge keeper. It's the person that needs to get under the hood, that needs to work with the teams to, to motivate them, to energize them, and, and to be make them successful. Um, I think this role is has an opportunity mainly because we see everything in the business, and we have an opportunity to, to cross over a lot of departments, no matter what the type of company, 
in, in my in my personal opinion, that's that's really what we need to evolve into, um, and that also means mentoring people. That means giving them the the business into insight throughout the company that I was fortunate enough to get from General Electric, but you don't see a lot of places. And I, I and I find that I you know you, you know people are always talking about generational things with problems with millennials or whatever. And in reality, I think what it is, it's a it's a training gap that the older we are, that we got that in a lot of the companies in our first experience. A lot of companies don't offer that anymore. You go to startup A, you're not going to get that. So for me, it's educating people about the business and not just the basics, but how we apply the the, the metrics and the business to our specific company. When I came out of school, I thought I knew a lot about a company, you know, about accounting and finance. I got the training at GE and they're like, that's all well and good, but this is how we do it. This is how, what we expect. And this is the analysis that we look at as General Electric. And that's what is missing, I think, from a lot of these companies is that that time to spend with, to, to educate, to, to really have people have that knowledge. So when we have to make changes and we can't always communicate them, at least you have that basic understanding is, oh yeah. That does make sense. We're trying to lower costs so that you know we we can we can conserve on cash. I get that now, right? And and I don't have to explain that to you. Well, uh, this next question uh, we sort of touched on a little earlier. Perhaps uh, we were talking a little bit about when you moved to MuleSoft and about a recruiter and about the observation, the trigger point you described, how you realized your world was a little bit confined. We're wondering when you first step into that role, what is the piece of advice you wish someone had given you? And again, you're you're stepping into the CFO role. We're looking for that idea where suddenly you have all the responsibilities. And while it looked kind of obvious to you what the role might be, suddenly you realize there are a few things you wish you you had answers for. What what might one of those have been? Uh, if you could go back in time and give yourself uh, some information, what might it be? Anyway, that's what we're looking for here. <laughs> well, I think the the best advice I'd probably give <clears throat> Jim Emmerich, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, was uh, to listen more and say less. I think um, you know you have success at certain places at Salesforce. You know, I, I, I can never thank Mark Benioff enough for the opportunity that he gave me because he basically allowed me and, and the finance team and Steve Cakebread allow me to do things that I never would be able to do. But with that came the the knowledge of, hey, I know a bunch of stuff. Like, I got this, right? And um, <laughs> I think you still, no matter what you go into, what new job you go into, you have to go in with um, some humbleness, some real desire and curiosity to learn first and then apply. I think the trap that you know I fell into for sure at MuleSoft was, just assuming stuff and then going like go for force. And that's what you were used to because you knew so much about the the company you were in. But as I transitioned, it was really like, I gotta, I gotta build my network in here first. I gotta, I gotta build trust and confidence with the exec team. I've got to build trust and confidence with the company. Um, And then they can, you know, they'll, they'll look at me from my title for a while and they'll look at my experience. But at the end of the day, if I don't have that relationship or the, the respect um, and the trust, like it makes my job exponentially more difficult. And I think, you know, anybody that's taking on the CFO role there, you know, I'm assuming you've got at least some breadth of knowledge of the finance and accounting. That should be like table stakes, right? It's beyond that. It's really that building that network that you have to build every time you come into a new company, meeting, you know, the managers, the executives, the individual contributors, 
understanding the the weaknesses and pains and challenges and opportunities. Um, you know, that's that's the advice I would give. Um, it's it, as I've evolved in my career, it's more about the people you hire, the teams you have. How do you motivate them? The the energy that you can you know express to them, and they can express to you, and, and getting that collaborativeness to work and the transparency to work. Can I ask you? What about now, uh, under these circumstances? How are you connecting with those team members today? And and I don't mean logistically, I guess. Uh, but are you, you know, how it, it's very challenging in the uh, social distancing world? Any 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 thoughts on that? Have you reflected? And I imagine you have in some ways uh, about that. Yeah. Yeah. For for us, I mean, in general, we've got some great ideas that you know the. Um, the human resource departments come up with people throughout our organizations, things like still having happy hours, right. And, and spending time in a social setting rather than, I know it's over zoom. It's not as personal. It's not like you're, you're able to interact directly, but having that chance to talk about other things um, than just what's going on in the real world and what's going on in our business. Um, and I think too, you know, I try to make it as, you know, fun and exciting um, to talk about, Hey, while we're, we've got these challenges that we're dealing with, you know, talking to our customers or vendors or whatever it might be. At the same time, here are the, a lot of the opportunities that we have. Here, here are the, the, the things that, you know, we're working on that you know, are, are different than the day-to-day gloom that you might see. And it, I think it's also helpful. People ask about, like, well, what's your experience? And there, there aren't that many people that probably have seen, A, a recession before or anything like this before where there have been some shortages and I'll probably be dating myself, but I do remember way back when, when I was a kid, you know, the, the oil crisis that we had where the, there were oil shortages. And I remember sitting in my dad's Buick Electra, like, cause we had an odd plate and we could go fill up at the gas pump, right. On, on a Thursday. <laughs> um, so I do remember what, what that was like. And I've lived through yeah, hurricanes and, and, and natural disasters as well. So I've seen kind of the runs on those stores and it's, having a sense of calm too about like, I understand there's a lot bad going on and I, and I hope everybody as well. At the same time, we will get out of this. Like the human race has existed for a long time. We made it out of the pandemic in the Spanish flu pandemic. We will make it out of this. And having, having that kind of frank uh, discussion along with the, the socialization and just having some fun. Like you sh- I usually have funny backgrounds on my, my zoom videos, whether it's a, you know, palm trees one day or my, my dog that passed away a few years ago in the background, or it's just something that, that breaks up the day and makes it, you know, bring some, you know, joy, joy into the, the day and you know, a- asking simple questions like who, who took a shower today, uh, you know, making people raise their hands <laughs> and seeing the very few of them that actually did is pretty funny as well. Well, no, it's interesting because I think, yeah, it takes a little effort to do that, but it's what needs to be done. There's no more water cooler talk, you know, subtract that. If it's all business on these Zoom calls and communications, uh, you know, you're going to miss an important component of of your culture. So thank you for, uh, you know, highlighting that so nicely for us. Um, I want to find out just a a personal reflection, just is there some part of your daily routine? Do you have a habit? Or is there something you do each day that you think in some way over time has contributed to your professional success? Something that you personally, uh, on the personal side, do? Yeah, there, there's. I, I have a little bit of a routine that I do pretty much every day. Um, 
up until the not being able to get out of the house, um, I, I always would wake up early, especially in the, the past, uh, call it 12 months now. Um, I get up, we used to get up at 4.30. I'm getting up a little later now. And then going and, and you know, taking a walk or, or going to the gym and working out. Um, it's a great time to do it. And by the time I get back to the house, you know, my, my young kids are up there. They're five and seven. And uh, I, I'm ahead of them for a change rather than them being ahead of me, which is a good thing. But bringing that energy level up immediately in the day has been really beneficial. Um, probably, especially as I've gotten older, it's it's helped. Um, two, it's really plan- taking the time to plan out the day. So, you know, I still have an old, uh, I have an old uh, notebook here that I, I plan my day out. Um, and I think about the meetings that I'm going to have and the content of those meetings of what I want to cover. Um, not everybody does that. You, know, you have one-on-ones, but I want it more structured because I have a limited amount of time and I want to make sure that we both interact um, very well. And Or in a, if it's a, a project that we're working on that has a very distinct kind of deliverables. Um, you know, reflecting at the end of the day a little bit on, on what happened and then making sure I <clears throat> have the right notes uh, to either schedule things or, or schedule them or, or for that next meeting that we have. Um, and then, yeah, just having some fun too during the day helps a lot. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all those combinations. It's probably not one thing, but, you know, reading a lot of, I, I do a lot of reading on subjects that don't relate to finance, around people, around, uh, you know, history, around leadership. Um, getting a broad spectrum of, of of knowledge that you know is outside of my norm of the day. Well, maybe this is a good segue. Then, is there a, a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Doesn't have to be a business book. <laughs> I always say that. But. Yeah, I think you know to be yeah to be frank, like the best book that I've read recently is Radical Candor. Um, it, it is it's not a finance book, obviously, but it really helps um, people. Be radically candor, but <laughs> have radical candor. But it really helps relationship building, and it helps um, people that may not really recognize it in themselves of maybe destructive behavior or a different way of actually approaching people that gets them to buy into what you want them to to improve on or work on. Um, I've been using kind of that methodology. Um, I actually started using it prior to reading the book, but it, it really. Um, it was very profound to go kind of go through that. And, and those are, you know, that's one of the books that I'm like today I told uh, when we started doing this uh, shelter in place, I told my, all my folks that report to me, go, go buy that book either on Kindle or, or get a hard copy and read it while you're trapped. Uh, it gives you something to, to read, which is really a, um, a good level setting for the, the you know, organization and, and, a, and a common way of approaching um, people and, and discussing how they can improve. I, I haven't read the book, but from the title, it makes me think that uh, radical candor, that if you're frank with people, if you're coming forth with uh, real uh, honest uh, criticism, uh, it's it's more helpful than not. Um, I, is that part of it? Or, yeah, uh, am so, I, uh, yeah it, it, there's two pieces of it. It's, it's around, one, building relationships that people know that you care about them. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to have like I, my brother or my sister or whatever, but have a, a real caring, um, you know, knowledge of them. And then it's, it, then you can give them feedback in a more direct way. It's kind of like your family. Like there's no filter in a family, right? They know, you know that you love them and, and they love you. And they basically say, Hey, well, dad, you know, you got to go lose some weight. <laughs> you know, while other people might not say that to me, like they will say that to me. Right. And that's what you want to get to. Cause I know they're not saying it to be, hurtful. 
They're saying it to help me, right? And that's that's I think the the antithesis of the book. Let's try to, to distill it down. It's a it's a great it's an easy read, and it's uh, there's a lot of anecdotal um, stories in there, which uh, I think we can all relate to, especially as managers. Yeah, great, great example with the family. So many of us are uh, <laughs> among them uh, more now than ever. So um, finally, we're up to our final question where I ask you to look forward for us and uh, share some of your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months. Yeah, for, for, for me, it's really, um, you know, analyzing those working capital needs um, as we as we move forward in this this kind of uncharted land a little bit. Um, it's it's uncharted and it's not, right? We've been in recessions before and it's really around, like I said, working with with our various partners, both customers and and our suppliers to make sure that we work together as a team rather than just you win, I lose kind of thing. Um, you know, beyond that is, you know, looking at our core metrics and driving the same programs that we were doing anyway to help us scale more efficiently. Looking at sales productivity, looking at uh, that kind of next level down in, in those metrics to really help build a business that can, you know, obviously move forward through this this crisis today, um, but accelerate out. And if you look at like Salesforce, we were on the ropes in 2001, but because of the products that and services that we had, the team that we had in place, the vision that was there and the buy-in to that, all those things kind of worked at the right time, at the right place, changing our, our pricing model, changing our way we build and collected, all those things happened in a few months to move us from negative cash flow to positive cash flow. And so I think for me, it's it's doing that same type of analysis. How do we continue to grow the business, to continue to, to uh, offer amazing products for our customers and, and the consumers? Um, and at the same time, ensure that obviously that the company thrives and, and, and moves forward and accelerates out of this. And we do have an opportunity, in my opinion, and many companies will have an opportunity. Salesforce accelerated out and destroyed Siebel. Like, I remember being on those, those calls, hearing Siebel saying, hey, we lost $25 million of revenue. We don't know where it went to. And of course, our revenue was rising. And I'm like, I know exactly where it went to. It's going away from you. <laughs> so. In, in, in every recession, you have to really focus on what matters to the current environment. And I think that's a challenge for, for business people and finance people. What it was two months ago, your plans that you had, the budget you built, you can just throw out the window, right? You have to now focus on what the reality is for the next 12 months. What do your customers need? What do you need to renew your customers? How do you make them survive and thrive through this as well bring them along bring them through this um that's what that's what i think we need to focus on and i think that's what you see in a lot of these businesses like google was around in the early days in 2001 they accelerated out like a lot of these businesses did amazing things and transformed how we did things during these periods and that's i look at narvar very similarly like we have an opportunity really to accelerate our customers and being, bring new customers in to help them grow uh, in the digital realm and in the e-commerce realm right now and be more successful and help them survive. Jim Emmerich, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Jack, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. It's great talking with you. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor 
Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.